From Connext Media, this is Atlanta Born and Brand. I'm your host, Jonathan Hilliard. Atlanta Born and Brand is a show all about businesses that are being built right here in the capital of the South. But more importantly, it's a show about their founders. We wanted to find some of the city's most interesting entrepreneurs and creators, hear about their challenges, successes, and how they built a brand that will last. Maybe most importantly, we want to introduce these founders, brands, and businesses to the city they live in, their neighbors, to make sure Atlanta and those brands that call it home can thrive for generations to come. Over the last two years, we have witnessed one of the most incredible ascents for a brand maybe in the city's history. Atlanta United FC have taken the city by storm, selling out match after match, setting attendance records over and over again. And in December, they became only the third top-level sports team in our city's history to win a championship. Jason Longshore is the color analyst for our MLS Cup champion Atlanta United's radio broadcast. He's also the co-host of a daily soccer talk show network called Soccer Down Here. As we got to know him, one thing became clear about Jason. He is definitely a creator. And soccer in the South is the startup he's dedicated his life to. I played baseball, played basketball as a kid, grew up loving the Falcons, loving Georgia football. Um, didn't have any touchstone with soccer at all. And I, I guess I could thank a bad baseball coach for pushing me to soccer. I played a year of baseball and it was seven and eight year olds, typical overly into it coach that you see sometimes. Uh, I remember chairs being thrown in the dugout and wow. I was eight years old and kind of freaked out by that, wanted no part of it. Right. Um, played soccer in like gym class, but didn't, I mean, didn't know anything about it. Yeah. And the YMCA, the Clayton County Y, where I played basketball, had a soccer team, had like usually like one soccer team in each age group. It was really small at that time. And I said, well, if I play baseball this spring, I'm going to be on that guy's team and move up to <laughs> nine and 10 year olds. I don't want to do that. Let me try soccer. And I liked it. I mean, it was, it was fun. I didn't, again, it was weird because I mean, growing up as a sports fan, you know, like I knew who to look to at basketball, you know, in 1985, 86, it's like, wow, you know, Michael Jordan's starting to become a thing. Dominic right. Wilkins here was Huge. a big deal. Yeah. Um, football, baseball, you had guys to look to. Soccer, you didn't have that. Right. But that summer, the World Cup happened. And some of the games were on TV here. So I had a chance to see it up close, and that hooked me. Uh, you know, I've been wondering, listening to your show, I know you're you're an Argentine national team guy. Is that where, yeah, where the origins of that came from? Specifically that World Cup. Yeah. Um, that was the last World Cup that they won. Diego Maradona just hooked me. And yeah. it wasn't the game against England that everybody talks about. <laughs> I saw that later. I didn't see that live. It was the semifinal against Belgium where he scored two goals that were both just ridiculous. And... Then NBC Sports had the final, and they had a lot of lead-up and explaining like how big of a player he was and showed a lot of highlights. And that final is, is probably what really sealed it for me because it was a, it's one of the best World Cup finals of all time. Yeah. Uh, Argentina takes a two-goal lead. West Germany comes back, scores twice. It, it's it's you know setting up for a wild finish. And then Maradona with an unbelievable pass, and Jorge Burrachaga scores the winner. It was a great game, and I remember being hooked by just the drama of the game, and then the team that I had kind of adopted won, 
And then I wanted to be a, a Diego Maradona fan and wear number 10 and wear Puma cleats and <laughs> find a blue and white striped jersey. And yeah. you didn't really have replica jerseys at that time. So sure. I found a generic uh, light blue and white striped jersey at the local soccer shop because we had one in Riverdale. It was pretty cool. Yeah. And uh, put an Argentina patch on it. And that was my nice. Diego Maradona jersey as a kid. Jason caught the soccer bug hard and followed the sport closely throughout his youth. He ended up on the team at Eagles Landing High School. He went to college at UGA and didn't realize it at the time, but his career in the sport was about to get an unexpected jump start. It was crazy because I, when I was in school, uh, this is before social media, it's before message boards, there was an email list, the North American soccer email list. and. <laughs> you would write something to the list and it would be, get spread to everybody on the list. And there were a lot of influential people on it. Phil Shane, who uh, works for BN Sports, yeah. he was on it back then. Um, so many people involved in the game were. And a lot of times if you were in a different community, you would write a match report of the game you went to. So <laughs> I started writing match reports for the Atlanta Ruckus. Well, the general manager contacted me and said, we'd love to have you write our match reports. Um, <laughs> you know, would you be interested? yeah it's a free experience watching you know covering soccer and and i don't have to buy a ticket anymore this is great so i did it that summer came around summer in 97 and he was like well i can't offer you an internship we don't have a a program or anything to do that but would you want to come work in the office and and get some experience and i was coming back home to to live here that summer anyway so perfect opportunity so that summer, I'm driving from Stockbridge to Roswell every day. Uh, my 85 Chevy Celebrity with no, uh, got no air conditioning, Ooh. duct tape holding the front bumper on. Um, and driving you got to go connector. There's oh, yeah. No, there's no other way. Yeah, you're driving straight through town. Um, I'd have to take a change of clothes because <laughs> you'd just be sweaty wow. like you worked out driving. Yeah. But that was how I got started in it. And um a couple of weeks after I started going to the office every day, the general manager was fired and the owner came in and I'd met him once in passing. And he was like, who are you? Do you want to work here now? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I started getting paid for my internship that wasn't an internship right. and stuck around. Um, at the end of the season, there was a lot of turmoil. Uh, the other, there were three of us in the front office at that <laughs> time. Uh, the other two left, and I stuck around and ran the team in the off season from my apartment in Athens while I was going to school, and had a fax machine in my college apartment. Wow, it was kind of strange. Yeah, but I was, you know, I'd started as a fan. Yeah. So doing all that didn't feel like work in the same way. Now, what year was was this? This all this was going back? into '98. Okay. Gotcha. So you were a couple years into Major League Soccer. The Ruckus were in the league below that, the okay. A-League. Um, pretty small. And the A-League had tried to be Division One. They didn't get that status. MLS <laughs> started. So they were still trying to figure out kind of who they were. And it right. was very minor league at the time. Um, I got into the 98 season, and the finances never worked out with the owner. Um, he ended up losing control of the team uh, for, that's a whole nother podcast that would take us <laughs> hours and hours to explain. But I had resigned a couple of weeks before that. Mm-hmm. And the league brought me back to finish that season out when they took control of the team. And then it eventually became the Silverbacks. Okay. So that summer I was delivering the Atlanta journal, the afternoon paper 
if anybody actually remembers that. Um, yeah. I'd love to hear that one. <laughs> Deliver in the afternoon paper. I'd pick it up at about 1230, drive around Clayton County, throwing a paper <laughs> out my window, had a cell phone, also booking like trips for the team to yep. go play in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Wow. It was insane. Now, it kind of fits into the theme of what pro soccer was in Atlanta mm-hmm. before uh, before the last few years, and even pro soccer around the country in a lot of ways. Um, I remember going to, uh, you know, DeKalb County to watch the Silverbacks yeah. as probably like a 13 or 14-year-old. So right, right around that, you know, in between the, you know, 98 to 2000 uh, range. And it was good soccer. You know, it was it was a solid thing to watch, but it just felt like, you know, when somebody said, hey, we're going to the pro soccer game, right. you're like, we have a we have a pro soccer team. Yeah. You know, and it was that struggle to get the message out there. Was that the biggest hurdle that you oh, kind of yeah, faced? For sure. I mean, we had we had no budget, so that <laughs> factored into it as well. But yeah, there was an element of that. We were coming off of a World Cup in 94, so yeah. people were far more familiar with it than when I was a kid. But still, you were a minor league product in a major league city. Hmm. And, I mean, the, the Braves at that time dominated sure. everything in the media. Uh, football did as well, but the Falcons weren't you know, consistent. It'd be a real up and down hmm. with them. College football, obviously. High school football was huge. Yeah. Um, the Hawks, it was the same. It kind of would come and go. So it was tough to, to fight your way in if you were soccer. And, and also in 96, you had the Olympics. So yeah. you had all of that kind of sucking the wind out of it when the ruckus were in their second year and could have taken a little more advantage of it. Sure. So it was a challenge. Um, had to do a lot of grassroots stuff. Had to reach out to, to youth clubs. I was always kind of involved in, in the internet as it was getting started. So trying to figure out like how to leverage that. I mean, the email list was one thing, but creating a website with Microsoft publisher right. in 1998 was, right. was my experience. Oh, if Squarespace existed oh, in 1998. Man. Yeah. It was trying to create this website and publisher and make it work for Netscape. Oh gosh. That was the, uh, the yeah. challenge of my off season. Yeah, and then you know you're you're in a world. There's no social media. There's no. no it's hard to it's get like to you people. said, right? Message boards. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there was still a lot of the mailers. You know, sticking things in people's. You had uh, the old uh, the old groups um, like rec sport right, soccer was right. still a thing, and you had those localized. So we'd sure. post there and. We'd try to get the players out and interact because we had a lot of local guys, so that right. helped. But it was hard because, I mean, now, when you think about Atlanta United, how involved they were in terms of marketing early on, on a big scale, but also on that grassroots scale sure. and utilizing social sure. media, how effective that was. We just didn't have that option back then. Right. So you had to have a ton of money to do those mailers and things. And mm. this club never had that. So yeah. you had to find a way and it, it was a struggle. And when... You know, you didn't have consistency in the front office and consistency in the message. Sure. It was hard to to build a following. After leaving UGA and following his time working with Ruckus, Jason went into a career in music retail. He worked for a number of different companies as the industry struggled to manage the transition to digital downloads. And ultimately, he wanted to find his way back to a career in soccer. That opportunity eventually came with Soccer in the Streets, a local organization focused on using the sport to work with youth in the Atlanta area. I knew of soccer in the streets from my time with the Ruckus because we did camps with them. 
And I reached out to Jill Robbins, who was in charge of the organization, and they needed some help in messaging and communications. And I'm like, perfect, this is a great fit. So I started on a very part-time basis, helping out with newsletters and press releases and website writing and stuff like that. And eventually it grew into a full-time role and it felt like a, a new title as the organization grew every year. And yeah. Um, ended up as a chief development officer and focusing a lot on the, you know, the fundraising, but also kind of the development of the organization and program development, what it could look like hmm. going forward. And at that time, you started to have the murmurings about Atlanta having an MLS team. Yeah. And we knew it would be with Arthur Blank at this point because he had pulled out of expansion in 2009 that would have come in in 2011 he pulled out of that round and said i'm not ready yet but i will be and we just didn't know when that would be yeah around 2013 we started to hear okay had he purchased like the rights to a team in the not city exactly at that point? he was the yeah. only one okay so you had had a few different folks after the initial launch of Major League Soccer where mm -hmm. the Atlanta Sports Council was heavily involved in trying to bring a team here, but there wasn't an owner. Sure. And MLS at that time had some situations like that. They had some clubs that didn't have owners that were league run. Yeah. They had to get it off the ground. They thought, okay, we'll have the, the league invest in it in the single entity model and we'll sell it. Well, Atlanta didn't have that owner, didn't really have a stadium at the time going into 96. They were going to play at DeKalb Memorial. That yeah. was what the bid stadium was because there was talk about it being refurbished for, a, I think, a track training facility for the Olympics. <laughs> All that never happened. So they didn't get in initially. The league wanted to come here. There just wasn't somebody to drive it. Sure. You had a couple of different people pop up. It never got anywhere. But it wasn't really until 2007 where Arthur expressed an interest in it that you started to see some real traction. And... He pulled out of that expansion, but I actually met Don Garber at the commissioner's party at MLS Cup in 2009, and, mm -hmm. and he said, look, we're going to be in Atlanta. I just don't know when, but we're going to be there, yeah. and it's going to be Arthur Blank. So I don't think he bought the rights at that point, but I think they knew he was the guy who could do it. He knew he wanted to do it. It was just that matter of timing, and a lot of it revolved around the stadium. Sure. So the, the whispers start, as you said um, – and then I guess it's, you know, what is it, 2014 mm -hmm. when the announcement happens. When you get wind that, okay, we're days, weeks, months out from an announcement that MLS is coming to Atlanta. What's that, what's that moment and that feeling like for you? It's, it's kind of crazy because there was a lot of business to it as well. So I was trying to balance, like, you know, me being a kid wanting a major professional mm -hmm. soccer team in my city and being on top of things. So we knew probably summer of 13 that it was a matter of time. We didn't know if it would be 14. We didn't know if it'd be 15 mm -hmm. when it might get announced, but we knew it was coming. So with soccer in the streets, we started talking and planning about what that could look like for the organization. So that was always part of my, my thought process. Um, early in 2014, it was okay. We don't know specifics, but it's definitely coming soon. So then you start ramping it up a little bit more and it's okay. How are they going to do it? When are they going to do it? Can soccer in the streets be involved? What can that look like? Mm -hmm. And as we got into the, the weeks ahead of that and we knew a date, we knew it was coming soccer in the streets. So, you know, it was amazing to be involved in that launch and mm -hmm. it was amazing to be in the room that day and, and feel that 
because it's kind of like MLS Cup for me this year where all the lead up, you're able to block everything out because there's so much going on. Right. But then when you get into the moment, it's just a different feeling. It's like something comes over you that sure. you didn't expect. And that's what it was like for me in that room when they said, you know, we're coming in 2017. One, it felt like a long time and it proved to really not be, but right. it was, you know, something that you always hoped. I mean, we had this, the Silverbacks, we had the Ruckus, we had soccer. We didn't have it on this level. And by this point, we had seen what Arthur had done with the Falcons, and you knew it would be first class, and you knew it would be done the right way. And Major League Soccer was in a different place at this point. You could see it right. really starting to turn the corner. So it felt big, and it felt like something that you couldn't even really envision five years beforehand or as a kid. You know, I could have never thought of something like that. The team that Jason and the soccer community in Atlanta had been waiting for was on its way. But it wasn't until much later that Jason's role would come into focus. In the meantime, he and co-worker Jarrett Smith started a podcast first known as the Peachtree Post, and eventually became Soccer Down Here. In parallel to Atlanta United's launch, SDH became a mission to shine a light on all things soccer in the South. I had left Soccer in the Streets, and Jarrett had interned with me at Soccer in the Streets, so knew each other really well. I'm always a, a big fan of his work and his perspective just when we would talk soccer in the office. Yeah. And I had left the organization because my mom was, was pretty sick and nearing the end of uh, her life. So I had to leave and help take care of stuff with the family. So while I was doing that, I, I, one, I just needed an outlet for myself. I needed yeah. something to be a distraction. I also wanted to stay involved with soccer, and I had no idea what it would look like. It was really just a leap of faith of, I need to go do this now. I'll just have to figure everything out as I go. Yeah. So I started writing for Dirty South Soccer and doing a daily column there, and that was a blast. And SB Nation and, and Rob Ustery, like bringing me on was you know, kind of a lifesaver in a lot of ways. So we were able to start a podcast with them. They had Mouths of the South, which was coming from a, a very a, a fan perspective. We wanted to come at it a little bit more from like a sports talk radio perspective. Right. And Jarrett had experience in that field. And, and that was kind of the approach was we wanted to talk about it, but also talk a lot about the league and, and the big picture. Mm -hmm. So we started doing a weekly podcast that then turned into a live podcast as we started to get more comfortable with it. And then as we were turning the corner into 2017, we were like, you know what? I'm not working traditional jobs at this point. I'm freelancing. Jarrett was working. I think he was doing afternoon traffic radio at the time. So yeah. he was free in the mornings. It's like, we can do this in the morning. Why don't we do it? So we decided to jump in and, and John Nelson jumped on board as well with kind of helping figure everything out at that time as well. And we started soccer down here to be that somewhat traditional format of, of a sports talk radio show about soccer, right. but in the space of podcasts. So we kind of felt like a little bit of an outlier the way we formatted it, but we wanted it to have that feel. We thought that feel was really important to how we could connect with people in a different way, because by that point you had a few different podcasts talking about it sure. and everybody had their own voice and we wanted to find ours and ours was to present it in that way. And it's, it's worked out. It's kind of stuck with us as we've grown. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that it's kind of this convergence of 
two different almost um, like eras eras of like audio media in yeah. the old sports talk radio and the new podcast. You guys are you have your own app now that is it powered by Spreaker? I yeah. guess is yeah. uh, so you found this niche and I don't I'm wonder, I'm curious to to know what you guys thought in the first in the transition from Peachtree Post to to soccer down here. I'm sure you carried over some listeners from mm-hmm. one to the other, but in the early days, how how did you think about it scale wise in the early days of soccer down here? Were you seeing, you know, hundreds of listens? Were you starting to see thousands? Did you think that um, it would it would take off as quickly as it did? We had no idea. Yeah, we had absolutely no idea. It was just we've got the time. Let's do it and see what happens. Yeah. And we were getting hundreds of listens with Peachtree Post, and I mean, Dirty South Soccer is a massive website. Yeah. So to have that push behind it, that helped a ton. Sure. And people did come over when we started SDH, and it was, I mean, I remember when I think we had our first thousand listen day, and it's like, wow, okay, this is crazy. Um, it was steady though. And that was the thing, like going into that, there was so much going on because we started, I think right around when training camp started for Atlanta Mm -hmm. United. So there was new stuff every single day to talk about. And then along that time too, we were talking to uh, the people down at ESPN Coastal in Savannah and Brunswick, and they were interested in getting the rights to carry the Carolina Challenge Cup. Right. Lanny United was playing in that, and they were able to get the rights, and they brought John and I to, to call the, the game that they acquired. It was the Atlanta-Seattle game in that mm-hmm. tournament. So I hadn't called a game on radio before. Um, I'd grown up listening to you know sports on the radio. Yeah. I, I think if you've grown up in this area, you know who Larry Munson is. You know who Skip no Carey doubt. is. You yeah. know who Pete Van Weeren is. Um, you know those voices, and you know that style. and. So, you know, to have that for soccer, again, it's one of those things I would have never expected. Like, I didn't even think it was possible. Yeah. So we get that opportunity. We call the game. Um, There were conversations about what Atlanta United Radio would look like, and we didn't know. Um, The team didn't really know at that point either. They were talking to to 92.9 the game, but nothing was done just yet. And it was a pretty late announcement, too, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah. I was very late yeah. because it was the week before the first game that it was far enough along to broadcast the first game yeah. and to make an announcement. And uh, they had somebody involved for, for play-by-play, Adam Schick, and reached out to me if I wanted to do color. And uh, I'm like, what, what is that what? phone call? Like? I don't even know. <laughs> like, it was crazy because I'd actually reached back out to the club, like, just offering help with whatever it might be in the booth. Cause yeah. I didn't, again, I hadn't worked in that type of field before and I didn't know what this would look like. I didn't know if it would be a spotter stats, whatever it could be in the booth to help. I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'd like to sure. help. And they were like, well, we actually have something else in mind and, and <laughs> offered me that opportunity. And I'm like, oh, okay, man. that was, that was yeah. Thursday. That was Thursday before the Sunday opener. So, wow. I mean, I felt prepared because I was doing a daily show at that point. Yeah. So, you, you've been doing the research, you knew the team. Yeah, knew the like, team, yeah. knew the Red Bulls, knew like right. the league, you know, could could just jump in and do it. Didn't know what it would look like on a game day <laughs> outside of the one game that I had experience with, so I knew how fast it could be. Yeah. So I studied, studied a lot of stuff I already knew, but just kept studying, kept studying, and, you know, showed up for game one and, you know, was just blown away by the number of people there 
the number of people in jerseys there for the first game. Yeah. Like red and black stripes everywhere was really cool to see. And just the intensity of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had had big crowds like that for soccer before, but they were special events. They Mm -hmm. were... You know, Gold Cup, or it was uh, Mexico and Venezuela in a friendly. Right. It wasn't Atlanta playing, <laughs> you know? And this was a different thing where I think people really, I think most of the people that were in the building that day fell in love with the team that day. Yeah. Because it was real. Yeah, I was, uh, I was on the field shooting uh, for that game, and my brother was down there with me. And I think it was just prior to kickoff, when the ATL chant broke out Mm -hmm. and you could just like the goosebumps standing up on your arm, all of the feels at that point. And you look around and I think for me, that's when it, it got real, you know, and you, you were, the conversations were, okay, are we disappointed that we're in Bobby Dodd and not in Mercedes Benz to start the stadium? And that first game, it felt like all now, Concessions were a bit of a nightmare. I heard some stories. Getting in the stadium was not the easiest thing. <laughs> Parking was not ideal. Yeah. It, but the game got started, and it felt like none of it mattered. Right. It was one of those things that, you know, Michael Tavani, the guy that runs Switchyards here, and I have talked about. Like, if you're an Atlanta sports fan, and you've gone through all these moments, whether it's Braves, Falcons, like – that night makes the list right at the top of pretty yeah. much anything. If you're if you if you follow soccer at all, really, even if you're just an Atlanta sports fan, right. I mean, you know, I wasn't here for the the Braves' first game, the Falcons' first game, the Hawks, the Thrashers. Yeah. I remember it. I mean, I wasn't in the building, but yeah. I remember it. This just felt different. It felt yeah. different from other sports, but not that different. So. That's been the thing that I've loved to see out of this. I think it's easy to talk about soccer fans who came on board because that's an easy transition. Right. You know, soccer fans who maybe were Premier League fans first and didn't really follow MLS. <laughs> okay, you have a team in your city, you're going to go watch and you see them play and it's a fun team to watch. You're going to keep going back. What I've loved are people who are brand new to soccer. <laughs> and we get it all the time um, on radio because, you know, 92.9 is the home of the Hawks and the home of the Falcons. Mm-hmm. And, sports talk in the city and people will check it out and listen and get hooked. Yeah. And that's been like my favorite thing about it is people saying that, Hey, I didn't grow up watching soccer like you did. I didn't, you know, have a team I've never played, but now I listen to every game or I watch every game or I go to every game. That's what's the amazing thing about this. Yeah. And I hope that more clubs around major league soccer are looking at that because Nobody expected Atlanta to be what it is in the league. That's a big part of it. And the way the club presented itself being so open and so inclusive and just welcoming to everybody in the city had a huge hand in this fan base. And that's where I was going to go next was you talked about all the jerseys on night one. What do you think the club did in the early days? And, you know, we talked about, what was it, two and a half year run up you know, that they got from announcement to first game. Some of these clubs that we're seeing that are about to come into the league now don't have that luxury. Right. What did Atlanta United do right in those two and a half years to create that type of atmosphere from from the jump? They gave it an authentic feel from day one, whether you're a soccer fan or not. Um, a lot of people had an issue with the name when it was announced. And, and I remember when that got leaked, uh, Sports Illustrated leaked it 
maybe a week before the, yeah. the big unveiling. Yeah. And it's like, oh no, this is, this is, you know, this is going to be bad. It's going to kill that event. It didn't have any effect. Everybody knew what the name was at that point, but you didn't know what the logo was going to look like. And that was really cool to me was being at that, seeing the logo unveiled and the great video that was produced for it. Sure. Explaining it because you have a name in Atlanta United that sounds like a soccer club. Right. You have a logo that you see that, you know, you just run through a group of logos and you see Liverpool and Manchester United and PSG and Juventus and, and all the different clubs around the world. Looks like it fits. Uniforms look like a classy soccer team. Yeah. You know, it's, that was, I think for soccer fans, maybe they were more disappointed about the name and the branding than non-soccer fans. Because mm-hmm. I remember talking to people and hearing like, you know, well, what do you think about the name? It sounds like a soccer team. And this is from, you know, people who had never been a soccer fan. You're like, right. it sounds like a soccer team. That's good. That's cool. Yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, that was the <laughs> point. And it was such a simple thing. Yeah that I think always gets overthought by new, you know, clubs as they're starting up. It's like, well, we got to have this really unique name and we got to be able to, you know, really uniquely brand it. I think in this world you don't, I mean, you need to have your feel or your twist on it, but it needs to have an authenticity. And I think Atlanta United just nailed that balance. Well, and it almost, you know, United, as you said, has been used in soccer all over the world. Mm -hmm. It, almost felt different in Atlanta because of our our sports history yeah. and our status as a, a very transient city. Like, two years in now, looking back, how perfect does it feel that Atlanta United is the the club, is, as we talked about, is all-inclusive. It's not... You know, I heard you guys talking on your show the other day. It's not just people that are from Atlanta. No. It, those, tra- those transplants are part of the fabric just as much as the people who grew up in, in Duluth or Stockbridge. The championship really brought it all home. Yeah. I, I think the fact that, you know, this club was called United from day one and the naysayers were like, oh, well, when you call a club United, it's because you brought two clubs together and you didn't bring any clubs together. You can't use that name. That's wrong. Well, what it did is it's united the city. Yeah. And I think that was a goal. I think that was, you know, part of the vision. You never know. You you don't know how that's going to come off. Sure. But after the final, and honestly in the lead up to it, but specifically that night, I remember getting so many messages from people who I had played with in high school, people I had worked with with soccer in the streets, people that we had done programs, you know, with partners, people who were just listeners. And it was all different ways of them telling it, but explaining why they felt more connected to Atlanta after that. You know, people who were, you know, from Chicago, who were fans of other teams, didn't get into the Falcons and the Braves here, but this was their connection to Atlanta. Because, I mean, we all know, like, whenever there's a big sporting event and your team is in town, everybody's excited. Everybody's going to get into it. If you're a fan of other teams, you're not going to get into the Falcon Super Bowl the same way. Sure. Everybody jumped on board with this. But the bigger thing to me was people who have lived here for decades and decades from other countries who always felt on the outside a little bit because they weren't an NFL fan. They weren't a college football fan. Right. The Falcon Super Bowl run didn't resonate with them. This did. And I had people send me messages and say, I've lived here for 20 years and I never felt like I was truly part of Atlanta until tonight. Mm -hmm. Stuff like that 
shows you why you named the team what you did right. and everything that you did to actually create that community paid off. We'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't give credit to what the team has done on the field. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. That uh, winning cures a lot of uh, ales, whether that's, you know, your stadium six months late or, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it probably if the team had had a losing year, year one, would the hype be the same as it was? I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's one of those no questions. Way no way to know. But it's interesting that you keep, you keep kind of seeing the team take that extra step mm-hmm. towards making sure that they're doing everything they can to keep that product on the field and to build that solid fan base. Because if we, you know, if, if Atlanta has a, a down year in year five after four years of – making the playoffs and making a run at, at a MLS cup, your footing is solid. It's yeah. there. Yeah. I and it feels like the front, office, the front office knows that, you know, product on the field is, is probably number one in, in fans minds. Yeah. I mean, it's sports. You, you yeah. want to support a good team. Sure. What I like about how this went down is you, you can't guarantee it's a good team. <laughs> I mean, you can go out and spend the money on great players. They might not mesh. You never sure. know until it actually happens, but well, especially what? when you're dealing with so many unknowns of yeah. guys from, who have never played in the league before or from different countries. You mm-hmm. don't know how they're going to transition. That's It's one of those things. It's Like you said, it's kind of an unknown in a lot of ways. Yeah, but what they committed to was playing an entertaining style. Sure. Yeah, you know, They committed to, okay, we can't guarantee if we're going to win every game, but we can guarantee that we're going to entertain our fans who come out and spend their money to be here. And that's a huge part of it. And I feel like... You know, you look at the messaging from Atlanta and Minnesota, who both launched the same year, and Minnesota came out and said, it's going to take us three years to be competitive. (laughs) When you say that, and you come out the other side with Atlanta, and you say, look, we all know we're going to win a trophy in the first year, but we're going to try to win everything we can, and we're going to be entertaining. And Darren Eel said it a bunch of times that I'd rather have a 4-3 match than a 1-0 match because I want to be entertaining. I want to put a product out there that's entertaining. That's the part you can control. Sure. You can't control the ultimate result. You can be entertaining. You can play a great game. You can have 20 shots on goal and hit the post 15 times and walk out of there with a loss. You can't control that part. But you can control that mindset, and they've done a great job of doing that. What I love is that year one was a, a huge success. You go out and you spend $15 million to bring in one of the most you know promising young talents out of South America for year two. Year two, you win the trophy, you win MLS Cup, you go out and you buy the South American Player of the Year and bring him here for year sure. three. That's a massive commitment to not just being good, but being a leader in this game in this country. So where is soccer's place in this country? The arguments can be heard all over the nation, but Jason sees things a little differently. And it all starts with a reminder that MLS is just a 22-year-old league, a baby compared to the more established leagues in the nation. It's the best startup professional sports league in the history of professional sports. Wow. I mean, you know, the NFL took a long time to get to where it was. Yeah. Major League Baseball started in 1876. (laughs) The NBA went through all kinds of fits and starts before it became what it is now. Sure. Mergers. Yeah. I mean, you know, barely surviving into the 80s. And then you had, you know, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson yeah. blow it up. And you had TV jump on board. Then you had Michael Jordan. So you look at those leagues 20 years in <laughs> and the growth that they had had. And you compare it to what MLS has had. 
you compare MLS to leagues that started in the mid nineties, whether it's, you know, the arena football league, whether it's the, the league in Japan, um, whether it's the Australian league and you look at the progression of where MLS is, it's in a different place. It's going to be fun to watch Atlanta have such a hand in that too. Yeah. As now they get to compete head to head in CONCACAF Champions League against some of these clubs that we're talking about from Mexico and really do their part to sort of push MLS over the top there. Yeah. Be a lot of fun to watch. That's the exciting part yeah. to me is, you know, in, in the NFL, since Arthur Blank bought the Falcons, the Falcons have been a more of a model franchise. Right. And, you know, we, we hear about Arthur's involvement in the league, you know, <laughs> matters and, He's really pushing things forward, and that's, I mean, that's who he is. But you also have a lot of powerful owners in the NFL. Right. You know, the Hawks are not pushing the NBA forward. The Braves are not pushing Major League Baseball forward. Atlanta United is pushing American soccer forward. <laughs> this is Soccer City USA right now. It, it truly is where, you know, we're asking questions that other clubs couldn't dream of right now. Sure. How many times do we want to open the stadium to 70,000 seats? <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, do we want to spend uh, eight figures on a talent from Argentina? You know, do we want to say no to a $20 million offer for a player in Miguel Almiron? The questions that are being asked in Atlanta about soccer are just not on the, the landscape for some other clubs in this league. That needs to change. Yeah. You need to see, it doesn't need to be such an outlier, but it's really cool to be at the front of it and watch as. Atlanta is kind of pushing things around the curve. What, uh, to wrap up, I want to ask you two questions. The first one is obviously the big moments we're all going to remember of, uh, you know, March 5th when, uh, when the thing kicked off and then, uh, December 8th when MLS cup happens at Mercedes Benz and Atlanta brings home the title. What memories over this journey stick out to you that maybe, um, you know, aren't, aren't the top headlines, man. Um, the one that I always remember from 2017 was the last game at Bobby Dodd, uh, Tito Villalba's goal in stoppage time to get a draw against Orlando. <laughs> but it was, it was one of those things where, you know, it was the last game there. We all knew that going in mm-hmm. and Bobby Dodd had become a, a great spot for a game. It had, yeah. um, it had a great feel to it. And it, it had that, I think, only if you grew up here and you grew up around college football and you had that late afternoon kind of feel where it has a little bit of a special sure. element to it. You know, you had the sun's out. It's a three thirty kickoff. I mean, you know, you could almost hear like the sec theme in the background <laughs> and, and you have yeah. that moment. If only Vern was on the call, you know, yeah, no. he would have been amazing on that call. <laughs> but you had that special moment yeah. where, you know, he jumps into the crowd. And that is the one that I'll always go back to <laughs> from 2017. Um, the running games at Mercedes-Benz, too. I mean, just the, the way they were playing when they were demolishing New England and the Galaxy sure. and winning 7 nothing and 4 nothing. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, going into 2018... Seeing the development in some players from year one to year two, seeing the second team take the field, Atlanta United too, yeah. and getting to watch you know guys like George Bellow and Andrew Carlton and Chris Goslin, local kids, get that opportunity. There was a game with the twos where Dylan Gaither, an academy player, is not even on a pro contract, scored a, a late goal 
it was assisted from another academy player making his debut. And that's one of those that I'm just so glad I was there and yeah. got to be on the call for that. Um, the championship, obviously, but the game at Red Bull Arena was pretty special, too. Um, you know, pretty early in the second half, you knew it was done. Right. And just watching the team celebrate, you know, watching everything at the end of it, watching the team run over to the pretty large group of traveling supporters yeah. who made their way up there for that. Um, it was a special night. It was very cool to see that, okay, this has a different feel from our traditional yeah. Atlanta sports where we come up short in the <laughs> final moment. And once they got past that, I was honestly pretty confident going into the final. I think we all were, which kind of threw us off it a little bit. It was weird. It, it was, was strange. It was very strange. Like <laughs> as that game was playing out, I think uh, Mike Conti was was you know fired up, like worried, waiting for that shoe to drop because he went through the Super Bowl. Oh, you know, he was yeah. there and went through all of that. I was just once the second goal happened, even before that, even the save that Gazan <laughs> made at the end of the first half, yeah. I was like, okay, I feel good. The second goal happens, it's two nil. I'm Curtains. fine. Yeah. I'm just chilling in the booth. Like, we're we're yeah. good. This is nothing to worry about. Yeah. And as it went on, like I could start to hear it in Mike's voice, like, you know, there, there's that edge to it. Then as it gets into the seventieth minute, okay, it's starting to relax a little <laughs> bit. Then in one of the, I think, boldest, most confident coaching moves I've ever seen firsthand, you, you sub Joseph Martinez out. Yeah. You're, you're good at that yeah. point. It's done. It's 2 nothing. You don't need yeah. any more goals. You're, you're, it's lights out. You know what? The opportunity, though, that that created in, in Joseph and then later on in the game in Miguel mm -hmm. for the fans to, to yeah. voice their appreciation for Miguel those two especially. guys. For yeah. Miguel especially. That, I mean... Aside from final whistle, that might have been the loudest the building was all night. Yeah. The Miguel one was yeah. total goosebumps for me. And that was that was really where it's like, okay, just just blow the whistle. It's done. Let's, let's, right. let's lift the trophy. Sure. So that was special. And it was different because we normally don't feel that way if you follow any Atlanta sports. <laughs> um, I have to constantly tell myself not to feel that way about Georgia football. And <laughs> I feel like Charlie Brown getting the ball yanked away every time. Right. Right. Well, us Georgia sports fans, we went through a lot, and so we were due. You know, yeah, that's what, absolutely. what we like to say. But uh, and, and to close, Jason, for soccer down here, for Atlanta United, what do you see down the road? What's uh, what's in your mind's eye about what's next for, for both you guys at soccer down here and for the club? It's, it's funny. I mean, for just the club and the sport in the city – I had people ask me that about the final. It's like, oh, did you ever dream that you'd be calling a, a you know a championship game? I'm like, no, we didn't have a team until last year. Like, I, there was no possibility to dream this. Six days before the opener, you I know, thought I was going to go as a. You I know, thought a fan. I was going to go as a, a fan, and I was going to go as a media member, and now yeah. I'm calling it. So, yeah. no, I didn't dream it. Um, right. So it's kind of hard because. I think CONCACAF is going to be an eye-opener. I, I think it's going to be really exciting. And we'll make it something big in this city. Yeah. And then, you know, the team goes into their final prep, going to California and playing some preseason matches and, and getting ready for this. And then you're playing against the Costa Rican champions. It's not an easy first you know, round of 16 sure. debut in the tournament. And if you get past that, you're probably playing Monterey, which is a massive club in this hemisphere. That'll be huge, and that's going to, I think, change things a little bit and give it a different feel and give it a broader feel. 
I think going into a season where you're the you're the champs and you have to defend that will have a different feel for Atlanta. Um, I'm excited to see where the league grows and how Atlanta takes advantage of it. So being able to tell that story of this is a good thing for Miguel Almarone if he gets sold for a huge transfer fee. Right. It's a good thing for Miguel. It's a good thing for the club. It's a good thing for the league. This will happen more and more often. But then you're also going to see the stories like Joseph, where you decide to stay because I'm happy here and this is this is where I want to be. So you're telling that story is something I really love doing. Um, I'm excited this season about telling the story about a new manager. Yeah, you know Frank DeBoer will will have this team play a little differently, not dramatically, but a little bit. It'll have a different feel to it. And being able to talk about that will be a lot of fun. Um, for soccer down here, it's been kind of a wild ride for us because we now have a, a steady group of live listeners to where, you know, during a show, we're getting tons of people tweeting at us and sending us messages and interacting and asking questions. Um, it's a lot of fun. I mean, it really feels like that radio show that we were hoping to be. Sure. Um, well, and you get another uh, another MLS team in the footprint in yeah. 2020 up in Nashville. It's been an evolution for us because yeah. when we started, it was, okay, we're going to cover soccer in the South. You can't just cover soccer in the South if you don't tell the story about the country. Yeah. And now like, we've kind of flipped in the last year from being a soccer show about the South to a national soccer show set in the South. Sure. And... I think we really have a unique voice in American soccer because if you listen to other shows or other, you know, reports from around the country, it's a different vibe because, you know, in Chicago, a lot of people don't know who the Chicago Fire are and there's not a lot of hype about them. In New York, they had zero media come down for the first leg of the Eastern Conference Finals. Atlanta sent 16 media members, not including us doing radio, to Red Bull Arena for the second leg it's a different thought of what soccer is, what it can be, what they're afraid uh, around the corner here. It's just optimism. Yeah. So I'm glad we're able to, to tell people that. And then also, okay, what's happening here in Atlanta is awesome. What's happening in Statesboro with Tormenta is really cool. The investment that Darren Van Tassel is putting down there to build a stadium in Statesboro, Georgia for a professional soccer team. Right. Like, that's happening in 2019. That's crazy. <laughs> Greenville, Chattanooga, you know, Birmingham now has a USL championship. Memphis, Nashville. And, and, you know, I think Nashville will be a different type of club than Atlanta. But I think they'll yeah. be a very successful club. It's, it's exciting. Um, I really feel like the South has a huge opportunity to, to grow the game for the whole country and do it in a different way. In, in a very inclusive way, a very opening way, and breaking down some of those stereotypes of how you have to talk about soccer in this country, what your mindset has to be, um, just how you present it. I mean, we, our coverage on radio, the way we call the game, I wasn't in the booth with Larry Munson. I wasn't in the booth <laughs> with Skip Carey and Pete Van Weeren, yeah. but it feels like it, you know? we. Yeah, we're from Atlanta. Yes, we want our team to win. Yes, it feels like, you know, we're part of it in some ways. We're not trying to be, you know, stepping back and away from it and detached. That's not how we treat sports here. Right. 
And that's not how soccer is treated in the rest of the world. So it feels right. And it feels like that's what we should do. So to be able to tell that story for soccer, not just in Atlanta, but around the whole region and watch it grow, I'm just lucky to be able to do it. If you're an Atlanta United or soccer fan in general, soccer down here is a must listen. You can hear it every weekday from 9 to 11 a.m. on their app or later in the day on your favorite podcast catcher. As for the team, Atlanta United begins its new season on February 21st in the CONCACAF Champions League, trying to become the first ever MLS team to win the tournament. Atlanta Born and Brand is a production of Connects Media. We're a full-service digital media production company focused on helping small businesses tell their story in the most effective way they can. If you're looking to tell the story of your business, we'd love to help. You can find us at connectatl.com. Special thanks go out to Chris Hilliard, Joshua Pruitt, and our families who make it all possible. Stay tuned in the show for more stories from the city's top startups and small businessmen and women. You can do that by subscribing in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you might happen to be listening. If you like the show, we'd really appreciate a review and a rating. And of course, share it with your friends. Keep up with the show on social media. We're at ATL Born Brand on Instagram and Twitter. And you can also like our Atlanta Born and Brand Facebook page. Finally, you can find all the previous episodes of the show on our website, atlborn.com. For Atlanta Born and Brand and Connects Media, I'm Jonathan Hilliard. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you all soon.